0: Hi everybody. I'm Henry Badgery and welcome back to our fourth episode of Open Source for Business, brought to you by Open Teams, the open source services marketplace where users of open source software can find, vet and contract with service providers. In this episode, we talk with Patrick Mason. He's a expert when it comes to developing and managing highly distributed organizations of the topics which we will discuss in this episode include what is the open source initiative open source licensing best practices biggest mistakes that companies make when managing open source communities and the future of open source software so are you ready let's dive right in
1: Hi, my name is Eunice Chenju, and I'm the VP of Partners at OpenTeams. Henry and I are super excited to welcome our guest for this episode, Patrick Mason, the General Manager and Board Director of Open Source Initiative, also known as OSI. The Open Source Initiative is a non-profit corporation with global scope raising awareness and advocating for the benefits of open source software. They also focus on building community among groups that are part of the open source movement.
0: Pope Patrick has over 20 years of experience in uh, senior leadership positions within higher education and not-for-profit organizations, uh, from being the Chief Technology Officer at the University of Massachusetts to working for the Office of the President, which I thought was very cool. so it seems like your, your professional experience, you've largely focused on development uh, and management of highly distributed organizations. And uh, within this capacity, uh, you then joined Open Source Initiative uh, to help professionalize the organization and also to help build uh, collaborative communities, which was great. Uh, we know that Patrick is active on social media, uh, on LinkedIn and at Twitter. You can find him at Mason PJ, and that's double S. Um, and... Another thing I wanted to bring up was the Open Source Initiative is now calling for proposals for their State of the Source Summit, uh, which will be held in mid September. And I'd also recommend that you check out their uh, new Open Source Technology Management micro courses, uh, which are fantastic. And they've been recently released. Uh, they're basically for professional development and training around certain open source topics, such as community building, contributing to open source, and much more. Uh, which is very exciting. So uh, now that the introduction's out of the way, uh, let's dive right in. So Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
2: thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the invitation. I think I'm going to have to capture your audio, be, uh, your, your introduction of our two initiatives. Uh, sounds fantastic. We'll have to use those uh, to help promote the events.
0: Of course, you can use it as you will, and I'm sure we will too. Um, but I know that you have a lot of experience uh, within the educational tech community, and prior to taking the position at Open Source Initiative, you were a largely an advocate of open source, which is which is great. So, could you actually take us back uh, for a second and tell us how you got here today?
2: Uh, sure. Well, I, I actually created or started my career um, doing medical and scientific uh, uh, illustration and visualization. So, uh, using uh, CGI, or computer-generated images, to uh, develop scientific uh, visualizations, modeling, um, uh, visualizations, and simulations. And uh, a lot of that work, obviously, was uh, computer-based. And I discovered open source through that process. Um, And while at UCLA, working in that capacity, began to uh, realize the value of, of modifying the tools that we were using for the visualizations and simulations. Uh, and open source software. And at the time, it was free software. The open source software movement hadn't been, uh, uh, the OSI hadn't been created yet, and uh, the the label open source hadn't been articulated yet or defined yet. And uh, really, that experience, the ability to uh, discover and modify tools uh, to make them do what I needed them to do, and what the university needed them to do was really a, a powerful concept uh, that really allowed us to focus in on our research efforts. So that's where I, I really made the transition from someone who pish, uh, pushed ink across the paper uh, to using digital technologies and computers uh, and discovering open source uh, in that way. Um, then, as my career uh, sort of continued, uh, I we began to use other open source technologies, um, so I'd always found, whether that was for online learning or uh, other administrative tools, that there was always an open source option out there, and uh, slowly carried that uh, those ideas and uh, those values with me as, as my career progressed into more senior uh, roles within institutions of higher education.
0: Okay, that's awesome. I'm actually really curious to know, what was it like when you made that first contribution? What was the perspective of open source then, uh, not just for the hackers, but for companies?
2: Um, Well, it was much different. Uh, So this was in the mid-90s, so early 90s, mid-90s. I was
1: about to ask you how long ago was that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, um, when I began uh, with open source, it wasn't the default that it is today, where the expectation is that there will be an open source tool, um, and the communities, uh, I think, were more like uh, sneaker networks, meaning that you wore your, sh- you know, sneakers like shoes. You walked across the hallway or down the hall to find your colleagues and peers. Um, we didn't have the whole infrastructure and community structure that was that is so common today that allows for uh, open source to to Propagate and and be shared. So most of the contrib, uh, contributions and the development work was very internal to the organization. So in this case, the university that we were working in. You you worked with colleagues that were working in similar research. Uh, you worked with other institutions that might have faculty or researchers or staff that were also working. And the projects were 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 really uh, small projects dedicated to the unique. Uh, set of tools that you needed. Um, of course, there are things like you know Linux and, and and things like you know those broader. The Lamp stack was becoming uh, popular at the time um, as a alternative to sort of traditional Windows uh, implementations. But it it wasn't like it was today. There was real challenges around the fear, uncertainty, and doubt or FUD of open source. In fact, I can remember standing up an FTP server um, and installing Fedora and the university network administrator sent me a nice email wondering what I was doing with this rogue implementation of, a, of an FTP server, in a, which sounds crazy today, uh, but it was a much different environment where contributions and development work was, was highly specialized and localized to meet individual needs for specific projects.
0: Okay. And when do you think the tra- when did you witness the transition from uh, sort of yes, like you said, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt? When did that start to change? Whereby um, now we're getting companies contributing everywhere, all around the world, uh, and it's just becoming the, it's become the norm. So yeah, when did you see that change? And what did that look like? Um, I think well, so
2: I will say again, go back a little history. So that was the free software movement. Um, and then it wasn't until 1998, uh, you know, 15, maybe even almost 20 years later that the open source initiative and the open source software movement took off. So, or was at least introduced. So in 1998, uh, that was probably one, uh, key point in time where free software advocates got together and recognized the opportunities that, uh, were available through Netscape Communicators releases open source software. So a little history here is um, the the idea uh, and the opportunities of of mass collaboration made available through free software and the the GNU public uh, the general public license from GNU and the uh, Free Software Foundation uh, created an opportunity for uh, folks to. Meet and get together and develop software, and Linux, of course, is the best example of that. Um, and the idea was, well, how can we take the the those benefits of, of mass collaboration, of the many eyeballs make all bugs shallow sort of idea, and and introduce that to business. So uh, there's a popular book at the time, and probably might still be, uh, "The Cathedral and the Bazaar," which talked about the development process that Linux uh, community um, in. Uh, undertook that allowed for somebody with an idea uh, and to gain a global audience and contributors. And that book, the, the Cathedral and the Bazaar, and the resulting discussions that came out, it got into the hands of the Netscape uh, folks. And Netscape at the time was battling Microsoft Explorer uh, for for browser dominance. And Netscape decided that they would take Communicator and release that as um, it wasn't really called open source at the time, but release it under a, a license that allowed for uh, uh, distribution, um, customization, use, reuse, um, essentially the software freedom of to use, modify, and, and uh, redistribute the software. and Taking advantage of that opportunity, a lot of folks from the free software movement got together. They met in Palo Alto and came up with the idea of of open source. That label uh, was created by Christine Peterson uh, during a meeting uh, related to the Netscape Communicator release. And from that meeting, uh, the OSI was formed and also something called the open source definition. So the open source definition, at the time, it was nine criteria. But uh, one more was added later, and these criteria were used to assess whether or not an open uh, software license allowed for software freedom, Again, the ability to, to use, modify, and redistribute the software. Um, and then using that open source definition, it was uh, licenses could be identified, and there were several, the BSD and the, the GPL and so on, other examples, the MIT, were identified as licenses that could be applied to software. Uh, and then allowed for those benefits, again, of mass collaboration um, around uh, software projects. So that was the sort of enabling uh, activity, the creation of licenses that uh, businesses, projects, foundations could apply to their software um, to create the network effect or to gain the benefits of the network effect of of mass collaboration. So that was... The enabling factor, the trigger that uh, all this happens. So, the initial response was the FUD of of well, what happens if you have open source software um, and everyone can see the code? It must be insecure. Um, who do you call if it's built by amateurs and and you know hackers in their basement? Uh, how good can it be? Um, if uh, you know they, these are all the sort of. Who do you call at two o'clock in the morning when you need support? You know you need a professional service level agreement to ensure that your core infrastructure is is stable and has um, the support that it's needed. So the first ten years, I'd say, of the OSI was really dedicated to uh, advocating for the use of open source software and highlighting its its uh, viability as a community. No, 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 really, mass collaboration around projects is a legitimate way to build software um, and it's quality yes this is this is you know comparatively uh, equal to and maybe better than um, existing proprietary options and then about 2004 I think is when we really started seeing uh, especially with the emergence of the web and the and the use of open source tools to enable uh, startups and companies to quickly, uh, without going through the procurement process and all the other sort of uh, overhead associated with it, uh, developing infrastructure, open source software really allowed for the quick and 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 easy way to build a company build services online so the development of the web and the and more and more activities and services products available through web technologies gave it that foothold that that then became what we see now so I think two thousand and four was Another pivotal point. And then finally, you know, maybe now, I don't know when everyone sort of it became the default. But when you see Microsoft loves uh, Linux now and you see um, Google's investment and Facebook built on open source and all these companies now, I just think it's become the default. So that was a very long answer.
0: No, no, no. That answer was... <laughs> amazing i think it's probably one of the the most rich and insightful (laughs) answers that i've ever got when sort of asking the question what is the history how did it change what did it look like and that that was fantastic because i think just for the benefit of those listening but also to myself it's that was a very unique answer that just it makes no so much sense uh it was almost as though it's just that gray area that needed to be uh defined uh for businesses to go okay we're ready to step in and and help drive this movement um So everyone, uh, anyone who's basically been involved in open source, they they would have heard of uh, the open source initiative. Uh, And as you said, uh, they're a steward of the open source definition. But for those uh, listening, what is open source initiative and what role does it play amongst the, the wider open source community?
2: Uh, So the OSI is a nonprofit organization that was founded back in 1998. So that same meeting that led to the label open source and the, and the identity or the, the definition being created, uh, that same meeting, uh, resulted in the creation formation of the OSI. And, uh, our mission is to raise awareness and adoption of open source software. Uh, we're primarily known for something called the license review process. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the definition and licenses that were originally created back in 1998 have been uh, added to uh, through the license review process. So what happens is any organization or person can submit a license to the to the OSI. That license uh, then goes through a process where it's peer-reviewed, publicly reviewed uh, to assess whether or not it conforms to the open source definition, those 10 criteria that have to be uh permitted or enabled through the license. Uh, And then that license becomes OSI approved. And uh, we then say that uh, you can call your software open source software uh, because it carries an OSI approved license on it. So that's what we're primarily known for. Uh, But in order to do that, uh, we have several uh, initiatives that help to raise support of open source software, its benefits, Um, And those range from educational activities. So, as you mentioned, uh, one of the latest ones uh, is a professional development and uh, graduate program with Brandeis University. So, that's a formal educational initiative. Uh, We also do things, uh, we have a great program called Floss Desktops for Kids, which actually takes uh, laptop and desktop computers that would be normally cycled out of, uh, uh, you know, sort of thrown away. And give them to the students to rebuild, and they get to uh, learn how the hardware works and they rebuild the machines and they install all open source software on them and then they get to take the computers home uh, for keeps. Uh, that's one of the students said that once. Uh, she said, Oh, I can't. I, you mean I get to take this home for keeps? I don't have to give it back. Uh, so those are educational initiatives. Um, we also work with government and um, companies to help them. Engage authentically with open source software. One of the big issues we're seeing now is something called what we call Fopen Source or Open Washing. So, Fopen Source is software that's released with a non OSI approved license. Um, and the f- folks that create that software call it open source, but it doesn't carry all of the uh, benefits of open source software. So, that's Fopen Source, like F A U X, folks F-O, get it. Okay. And uh, open washing is uh, when companies uh, through marketing and promotional initiatives, try to uh, orient themselves within the community as an open community. But they're really just using it as a as a way to to sell their products, or they're not authentically engaged. Um, so that's uh, a big area that we're focused on right now. Again, that authenticity in engaging with the open source uh, community. Uh, we do conferences. We have a membership program for individuals and also for uh, nonprofit organizations. So our affiliate members include Debian, uh, Drupal, WordPress, You know a lot of the platforms that uh, people probably recognize, and then other organizations with similar uh, uh, missions and visions around um, software freedom and um, the internet. Uh, so Wikimedia and Mozilla are examples of those. So those affiliate memberships um, help us to uh, Uh, By working with us, they add uh, credibility to the OSI mission, they add a voice, uh, they extend our community uh, toward our mission as well. So, I guess that's a pretty big picture of the OSI in terms of what we do. Uh, There's more, but you probably don't have enough uh, minutes in the day to hear it all.
1: (laughs) So Patrick, I know you were speaking a lot about the different services um, that open source initiatives offer. What I really want to know is, what is your pitch to companies, you know, to encourage them to become um, a member um, um, of the open source initiative, or even to go through your license review process? Can you tell us a little bit about what your pitch is to different companies, and you know, why should any startup of um, individual or even company, um, sign up for your membership and go through your licensing processes?
2: Sure. So I should probably clarify, uh, the OSI's membership is available to individuals. So I hope both of you will join, or maybe you already (laughs) are members, and shame on me for not knowing that. Um, (laughs) So there's an individual membership program. Then there's also an affiliate membership program. Affiliate members are nonprofit organizations, educational institutions, and user groups. So, again, Mozilla, Drupal, WordPress, Python Software Foundation, those types of organizations. Um, And those are only members. We have corporate sponsors who are organizations that recognize the important role that the OSI plays in. Uh, not only raising awareness and adoption of open source, but that work around license review um, as the steward of the open source definition, our advocacy work um, with government and um, companies and other institutions and organizations. So um, uh, the, it's a tough pitch because as a sponsor, it's really recognizing that role and the companies that are our current sponsors don't get anything for their contribution directly. We're a nonprofit. This is a straight contribution that they provide. Uh, they don't get a seat on the board. They don't get to elect uh, the board directors. Um, it's really their recognition that without the OSI, the open-source software movement as we know it today would not exist, that there needs to be an independent Third party uh, whose mission is to protect, promote, and protect open source software. So it's if there's a company that's interested in supporting the OSI because they want to, you know, get our membership contact list or have us tweet about them or be part of their marketing campaign, then that's probably not an organization that that is going to understand the true value and importance of our work. Um, and of course, we recognize our sponsors. We thank them for their support. Um, we, we engage with them. They're not only valuable to us for those direct contributions, but they're a huge resource for us to be able to connect with other companies around um, Uh, policy and practice and principles of open source. It's great to be able to tap a a large company that uh, has a great reputation for working in open source, tap them on the shoulder and have them introduce us uh, to maybe folks that we need to talk to about an issue or if Mm -hmm. there is an issue within the open source community to get them to help us uh, raise attention and uh, address the issue. So, We definitely try to work with them when we can but again our activity is wholly independent of any outside uh corporate um uh, influence or donations or contributions that just doesn't play a part so when i make the pitch to, to companies about why they should support us it's um really here are the activities that we do the initiatives that we have to do on behalf of the open source community of which you are part of and if you think they're important, we need your help to do it. It's, it's. I guess you could sort of say it. I mean, this is probably. I would never say this to a company, but it's sort of like the tax that that they pay to ensure that the roads are open for yeah. their cars to drive, their delivery trucks to de- to drive on, uh, make sure that the fire department shows up if their warehouse um, is on fire, that sort of thing. So. Uh, and I, we've had tremendous success with that. I'm I'm humbled and tremendously gratified by the outreach that we get from companies who will just contact us out of the blue. And shame on me for not having the you know uh, the resources and time and 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 to have reached out and. and contacted these people first, but often we're contacted by organizations that realize how heavily they're invested in open source, how much of their core infrastructure, how much of their products and services rely on open source. And if we didn't have clear uh, licensing um, and standards around uh, licensing, then a lot of the work that, they're, that they do and a lot of the tools that they rely on simply wouldn't be available to them. And so it's always gratifying to get those uh, those contacts coming toward us to support us.
1: Well, awesome. Thank you so much um, for um, really giving a good overview of, of why uh, OSI exists and the importance it has to different companies. Um, but since we are on the sexy topic, the one that I hear a lot, um, why uh talking with different people in the open source um, community or even users of open source, uh, one thing that always comes up is um, licensing. So uh, <laughs> really what I want to know is what are some of the licensing best practices for users of open source um, and, and really all the all the things around um, licensing and licenses in the open source community?
2: So Eunice, you must be hanging out with a pretty dull crowd if... Uh, <laughs> If licensing is the hot topic, uh, so <laughs> it's usually not. Uh, it, it's funny. Um, Josh Simmons, who's our president uh, of the board currently, has has this phrase that I'm probably not going to say it exactly right, but um, he often says the OSI does the janitorial work of open source, uh, meaning that somebody's got to come in here and you know make sure things are you know clean and working properly and that sort of thing. Um, so some of the best practices, um, you know, it's, it's broad. I mean, one of the things that for some reason seems to be controversial currently is the use of the open source label. So we're pretty adamant that only software distributed with an OSI approved license, which doesn't mean that 11 people in some room somewhere approved this license. It actually means that it went through a license review process with over 500 people who can participate in reviewing that license. So while it's OSI approved, the OSI is facilitating the license review process. And then based on the feedback of that community, we're approving or not approving or sending it back for modification so that it truly is a consensus of the community on whether or not this is an open source license. And again, whether or not it complies with the open source definition. So, so there's, because open source, the label, is now so common, um, you commonly used to describe all sorts of things, you know, open source textbooks and open source uh, hardware and open source. I even got an email once from somebody who wanted to create open source beer. So oh, wanted wow. to know if they could use the open source label to describe beer. Um, Free as
0: in beer. <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: exactly. Um, so... That is sort of a, uh, an issue that's, that's come up about, well, open source, you know, and the OSI doesn't have a trademark on the two words, open source, that phrase. Mm-hmm. That phrase actually, even more history goes back to open source intelligence, which was a, a technique used in World War II to assess the effectiveness of, of military activity during World War II. So could you derive any information that was freely available by observing uh, your enemy in the field? So that open source label actually exists before open source software, but it has become a standard, uh, a term of art that is recognized within technology and software industries as software that carries an OSI-approved license. So when you say open source software, there's a a general understanding across business and and government and projects and and developers that that's sort of what it means. so helping, first of all, startups and developers and new projects understand that. Often on GitHub, we'll see people tout that their project, oh, they've started a new open source project, but it turns out they've created their own license. Or they've taken the MIT license and modified it for something. And usually it's uh, right now there's a lot of discussions around ethical licensing. So. Yes. Um, what is the role and responsibility of projects uh, to ensure that those using the software align with uh, social conventions and, and ethical issues that they're concerned about? So the actually OSI or the open source definition doesn't allow for um, putting limits on use or users. So those two things are in conflict. The, the, the desire to ensure a healthy and and safe community of contributors and users um, where you mandate that. You can't use it for military use. You can't use it for uh, illegal activities. You you can't use it for things that might hurt the environment. Um, Unfortunately, in our fact we say evil people can use open source software. So there's two criteria in the open source definition that don't allow for discrimination against users, um, or fields of endeavor. So anyone can use it for anything. And by allowing that, it unfortunately allows people to use it in probably things that most people wouldn't like. Um, so that's part of the discussions and principles and practices that we often work with, uh, understanding what the open source label means. Um, there's also, you know, we get a lot of questions about, well, what's, our, what's the best license? What license should we pick? And so (laughs) we never get into that discussion. Uh, Licenses tend to be uh, constitutions of communities. They they serve as a foundation for how the project that picks the license wants to uh, operate, how it wants to engage with its contributors, uh, what its expectations are for the community of users and contributors. So, that'll be different, and there's no, that'll be different with every community. So, there's no right answer. What's important is that people pick a license that reflects how they want to develop their software, how they want to engage with the community, um, and that they understand the opportunities uh, or barriers to different licenses uh, through compliance with those licenses, the terms of those licenses. So, in that respect, what we do is we try to provide educational you know, resources. And that is, without a doubt, the number one question we get from our everything from our social media accounts to our direct emails to conferences. And when I speak anywhere is questions about the nuances of licenses, which license is compatible with that license, how, what's the compliance issues associated with this license, which license should I pick? Uh, what's the best license? Those sorts of things, um, and we don't tell anyone that. We just try to help them make a decision that they're most comfortable with.
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes That's sense. That's
0: great. And what do you, what are some of the best practices for companies that want to make sure that they're compliant, that they're not uh, going against any of these licenses? What do you say? Like a first step is uh, for a company that would like to do that. Well,
2: um, you know, unfortunately, it's going to depend a lot on the resources of that company. But obviously, uh, you'll want to engage with a local, uh, qualified, uh, legal uh, representative, if, or hire them if you can, uh, depending on the size of the company. But you really need to engage with a qualified uh, attorney um, who's experienced with open source software. Um, You know, there's all sorts of issues. Whether you know, you can be an end user where you're just downloading the software, and what are the compliance issues with that? And and generally, if you're just using that computer on your the software on your computer or within your organization, it's really there's not a lot to to worry about. You're just using it as an end user. Well, then it's well, what if I make a modification to that software? Uh, Just because I make a modification on my uh, software that I'm using on my laptop or within my company. you know, there's no real requirements be, uh, to share that, or you know, I can still use that as um, uh, as just for my own use. Um, when you begin to uh, contribute to a project, not just to run it internally, but you want to send something and contribute it back to, or create something and send it back to the community that um, is running the project, um, you might run into issues around contributor license agreements, or um, how do you license your work so that it's compatible? Um, with the existing license of the main project, um, so again, you'll want to uh, reach out to someone who can give you legal advice on that. Um, often, the projects will have advice on how to best license your work. Um, if they have a CLA, what's what's involved with that? Um, then there's creating your own project. So a company might say, "Oh, we've had really successful. We've been successful in running open source software locally." Uh, modifying it for local use, uh, contributing it back. Now the question is, oh, maybe we want to start up our own project, or maybe there's a mm-hmm. project that we've been working on that we're forking and creating a new you know, utility or tool or feature that's sort of an independent thing. So then again, what license do you want to pick? Uh, how does that license uh, uh, align with or uh, comply with your existing IP, other software that you might be including uh, with this? Uh, so having a licensed compliance, um, group is, uh, very important. Um, one resource for a startup or a, uh, you know, smaller company, um, or even a a project would be to seek out, um, organizations that help in this way that can be through a foundation. So if you have a project and, you're not sure about licensing or you're a small company or startup that, that doesn't have the resources to go hire a bunch of lawyers or even contract with them, you know, think about reaching out and even joining a foundation. So depending on the technology you're using, you might want to join the Apache foundation or the uh, Python software foundation or, um, software conservancy. Um, you know, those organizations will have resources that can help you, um, and your project or your company, uh, Best interact with and take advantage of open source licenses.
0: Okay, that was great. Yeah, because I think there's definitely uh, still a lot of work to go uh, because it's just, and even just open source is growing by the day and it's growing so incredibly fast that it's difficult to keep up uh, with the best practices, uh, particularly when it comes to licensing. Uh, but I now like to shift the focus a little bit and focus on something that you said earlier that I found really interesting. Um, you said that you believe that uh, proprietary, so- sorry, open source is better than proprietary software. So I said it could be. Could be, it could be. So could you please explain why, why is that the case? Why do you believe that to be the case? So
2: first of all, um, as someone working in open source software for 20 years, I can guarantee you that I have created terrible open source software. <laughs> there is plenty of bad open source software Just because it's open source Just because it carries an OSI approved license Doesn't mean the software is good That's a intellectual property And licensing issue Not a quality of code or features Parity with other things that, That's completely different So um, there are Like I said so there's, Just because it's open source Doesn't mean it's better than It's, it's com- you know, a, a, a similar proprietary tool That's out there um, and I think that organizations should use the same uh, due diligence in identifying and implementing open source software as they would proprietary software. The real challenge is, um, and it's getting better, but this used to be a challenge probably around you know two thousand five, two thousand ten, was as organizations like governments that have very strict procurement processes um, and businesses that that have internal controls around contracting and software procurement um, how do you include open source software in that analysis right so if you put out an rfp or an rfi uh, request for information request for proposals around software you're probably not going to get um, responses from open source projects because they don't have pre-sales Teams and sales teams that, that go out and, and answer RFPS and and salespeople that show up to you know talk about their the proprietary or the open source software just like they would with proprietary software. Um, so uh, the process uh, for including open source software um, as part of the decision making um, is is critical, and then. Uh, You might have to edit this out because I don't remember the, the, I've lost track of the question specifically.
0: (laughs) That's all right. Uh, Let me just write down the time quickly. So the the question, um, why do you think, yeah, the open source is better better. proprietary for better?
2: Right. So in this, in the case of procurement, uh, it's, it's, it's just being equal. We just want equal footing. We're not saying it's better because it's open source or that, because it's proprietary, it's inherently worse. We just want to be ensure that organizations uh, understand that, that that they can be equal and possibly better, so that for their benefit and the open source community, they're looking at all options. Um, so the other aspect would be, and I do think that the development methodology that's enabled through uh, massive collaboration and you know the many eyeballs make all bugs shallow. Um, uh, I think that is a better development methodology. So incremental, iterative development. And you're seeing that in project management paradigms like agile development and DevOps and things like that, where it sort of recognized the small next best step and iterative development is sort of the way to go. And open source licensing enables that, because you're making all of the software uh, source available for people to modify on the fly. Uh, they don't. You know, It's not locked down to just the 100 people, 50 people, 10 people within the development um, group of a company. It's being exposed to everyone. You're getting more input, people coming in and testing it against different sets of criteria and parameters, against different tools and technologies. So you're just getting more people who can tell you uh, whether or not it's, there's an issue. And yeah. that's only half of the benefit. Me telling you there is a problem is great, but you're also exposing the project to allow more people to tell you how to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. So you could be working with a small group of, of people who are working in a closed environment, and they might find the problem, but they don't have the experience or expertise to perhaps solve the problem. So again, by exposing this project through open source licenses that allows anyone to use and modify uh, the software, you're getting uh, much broader access to experts and so the pace of development increases, the quality of the software um, increases, and these are benefits that are only possible through open source development. So I wouldn't say that open source software is inherently better, but I would say open source development is inherently better.
0: Okay, that was that was great. Cause I think um, it's, it's also the, case, like you were saying, the fact that you've got community, you have group think, you have thousands of people around the world working on one project. It's just very hard for a company to be able to compete with that, um, and, and that's what has, I think, made this software movement, open source software movement, so so powerful and and swift in growth these days. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask is: is not all open source communities obviously benefit from that? Uh, but I know that you've had a lot of experience uh, both building and fostering open source communities, and I also know that one of the core, uh, like the, like you mentioned, one of the core services and activities uh, of open source initiative is to build and engage with open source communities. So I wanted to ask with with your wealth of experience in that domain, (laughs) what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen companies make when both building and managing uh, open source communities? Oh,
2: there's a few. Um, I think the two that come to mind first are the sort of, uh, sort of throw it or build it, throw it over the wall. It's got an open source license on it. And the community with just because it's so awesome will just start start uh, joining us and participating because uh, it's such a great tool and don't organizations want to be or don't people and and projects want to be uh, affiliated with us in some way so this sort of idea that if you build it they will come sort of thing um, and we're <laughs> leveraging our name as big company X uh, and so of course everyone's going to want to help us um, and then the other one is. Uh, uh, a big company or government, or you know someone some organization that's that's benefited from a high profile or good reputation comes in and thinks that they can sort of direct things oh we're here now we'll take care of it um, and those two are probably the most common uh, issues and there's little spin offs of 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 things that happen related to those two, but that idea that that all you have to do is put an open source license on it, and and everybody will want to come and give you their free labor. Isn't that awesome? Is one problem, and then the other is, uh, all right, we'll just show up and we'll give you know a hundred thousand dollars to the project, and we'll devote three developers, and of course now we'll decide the roadmap for the project. We'll decide the you know direction of the project and the features and the governance and the decision making will all be ours because we're awesome and big brother steps in <laughs> exactly so those are the two biggest uh issues so helping organizations understand that the, why those aren't appropriate uh um and they don't yield what you think they will uh that that's from the big picture um for smaller uh communities um and projects it's it's again about community development, and um, actually it's, it's ensuring that they're actually creating channels for people who want to participate to participate in any way they want to participate. Mm-hmm. So if I, and I think most people know this, it's just um, maybe they don't appreciate the time and energy and dedication it takes right? It's more than putting up a mailing list and a Slack. I would not, you know, Slack's great, but it's not open source, but, uh, so a rocket chat like some <laughs> other open source version. Um, but it's more than, you know, putting your stuff on GitHub and, and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and it's more than just technology related opportunities and coding related opportunities. It's, it's community development and marketing and fundraising. And it's, and it's not just, Taking contributions, but converting and incentivizing and facilitating new leaders within the project, you can't do it all. Uh, maintainer burnout is a real thing where yes. people feel committed uh, to their project and it's this double sided sort of story where it's like I can't do it all it's just, uh, now they want me to do a conference or now I have to deal with licensing and now i have to i just you know I just want to develop the software. Um, well then you have to be willing to give that up and you have to be willing to establish, uh, practices and expectations and maybe not policies, but sort of common awareness around the culture that you want to create within your project so that other people can step in with their areas of interest and expertise to participate, um, to make the project because those folks want the projects to succeed as well. And if you're not giving them that opportunity, um, then you can't do it all, uh, and your project will sort of be doomed through the sort of you know i don't know if it's a benevolent dictator it's sort of a clueless hoarder <laughs> I don't know if there's a name for the the person who won't give up control uh, maybe that will, we'll call him a clueless hoarder from now on. That sounds very derogatory yeah. though that sounds that's probably not nice. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Um, yeah, I definitely think these are some of the biggest mistakes. Even with my little experience in the open source community, um, these are some of the big things that I've seen um, over the last uh, year and a half of me being part of this of, of the open source community. So I really want to talk about um, the future and of open source and where we think it's heading. Um, what are you the most excited about uh, with regards to the future of open source?
2: Um, I am two things, um, okay. and they're on the different, spe- I don't know if they're on the, it's not fair to say they're at different spectrums, uh, different ends of the spectrum, but uh, I think that there's a real appreciation and investment by all organizations who understand the importance of open source in creating formal, legitimate, uh, you know, that sometimes are called um, OSPOs or open source uh, programs offices. Um, uh, So, but formalizing the role within their organizations uh, of the the role to enable, create, distribute, participate, engage with open source uh, from a company-wide perspective. It's no longer... Uh, one part of the organization, um, you know, it started off as the rogue developer who installed something on their desktop, stuffed under their their desk that nobody knew about. Uh, then it got to uh, well, maybe there's some part of the data center that yeah, they're doing something over there. It's open source; it seems to be working. Um, and now it's to the point where no, 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 this is this is core to our our company, core to our business, core to our government activities. So we're seeing all sorts of formalization around that. So whether it's the EU and the work that they're doing now around standards of open source, um, whether it's companies that are creating OSPOs, there's a great project that the OSI has been involved with, and some exciting announcements will be coming out soon around introducing OSPOs to uh, institutions of higher education. So education. Um, Why aren't uh, universities uh, creating open-source program offices. Um, when you think of all the intellectual property, a lot of open-source software comes out of of universities, colleges and universities, and research activities. Yes. So why isn't that something that's more formalized within institutions of higher education? Same with government. We also have a public policy group that's helping. Uh, we have a director of public policy who's working a lot with the EU um, and the European Commission on... Uh, standardizing open source and, and uh, creating open source policy. Uh, so that is very exciting. It's like, okay, it's not just now recognized. It's becoming part of uh, the day-to-day operations and expectations. So that's the, yeah. the one side. The other thing I'm, I'm – but this is also very scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the absolute incredible – Growth and engagement across all—I don't know if there's sectors or communities or populations or you know—around the globe, where we are seeing highly motivated uh, people working through self-discovery of projects and, I mean, startups and things like that. You know, I'm old enough to remember the dot-com boom in the late '90s and things. So it's not like there hasn't always been entrepreneurial activities. But the tone, the the, ad, the the driver is different. It's so much more about community and collaboration. Yes, it's great that we all make a buck or yes, it's great that we can start up a business. But at the end of the day, I'm impressed by so many people that are coming to, to us and I'm meeting through my work with the OSI from around the world that the reason I'm doing this is because of the community it creates and the ability to collaborate with all these smart people around the world doing sh- that have a shared interest. And it's uh, so motivational. I, I just leave every time I go to a conference. Well, I don't go to many conferences anymore uh, this year um, for obvious reasons. But every time I would go someplace or even uh, today and whatever type of exchange that you can have, whether it's through online activities or emails or, discussion forms, whatever it might be. Uh, That's the thing that I'm just... It just seems like there's a... This is going to sound terrible. A better group of people getting more involved for better reasons in open source. I'm not really that interested in the VC folks who are looking for the next open source super company. Yeah, I I don't really care about that. That's not exciting. That's not interesting. Just applying old sort of business models and hacks that are outdated and not really that helpful to, to really only help a select few. What I'm seeing now are people who just have altruistic, you know, vision of a shared co-creation of new opportunities that everyone of course is going to be entitled to participate in. It's such a different attitude and it's, it's fantastic. It's the most motivational thing that I see.
1: That's awesome. That's really awesome. And I think you have said it all, but I really want to conclude <laughs> with some uh, really strong actionable items. Uh, what do you think are some best um, action items that the people listening today can take to drive change as individuals or within the organizations so that it helps towards open source just becoming more friendly, you know. So we don't have to keep having conversations around open source and the different challenges that we are facing um, as we grow um, within the open source industry. I wouldn't even say community anymore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess that depends on you know the perspective of the person. Yeah. So if you're interested in joining a project. Um, I, I have a, a, uh, uh, my son is, uh, a junior in college. And of course I'm beating him over the head about how awesome open source. He's a computer science major and I'm beating him over the head about open source. Um, but he's intimidated. Um, you know, there's the imposter syndrome and things like that, which are totally real. Um, and I think it, it takes a lot of courage, especially if you don't fit the stereotype of an open, you know, if you you, can see whether it's, and that stereotype might be that you're, you're not an expert in coding or you come from a culture or background. That's not like the rest of the group or there's all sorts of those barriers. And it's probably very easy to say, just, you know, join anyway. Um, But I think, you know, so. There has to be a way to help people who might not fit the the typical I don't know vision or stereotypes associated with participation in open source, um, and so then that puts the responsibility on the community. So you know, actionable items are creating communities that welcome um, all participants because you never know where that next best idea is going to be. Um, allow for Leadership and activities to come from anywhere. Don't pick your favorites and create channels that really just only allow certain people to participate. Um, you know, so I think that's at sort of the project level on both the, the project uh, side and the individual computer uh, contributor side. Mm-hmm. Um, best practices uh, from you know larger organizations is. Um, you know, it's going to be a lot more work, but definitely formalize, uh, open source and your understanding and, uh, participation in open source communities. Um, you know, it can't be run by that person over there. Who's always done it just because, you know, they have to be given organizational authority and, you know, decision-making authority to, to, to affect change. Um, so you know, those are, those are sort of big picture items. Um, small things you can do right now. You can join the OSI as an individual member. (laughs) (laughs) So go to that opensource.org slash, uh, join or members and you can join. We have student memberships, complimentary memberships, regular memberships. Um, you can get your, your project uh, um, to join as an affiliate member. So, you know, that's, these are all selfish OSI things by the way. Um, but I think, uh, uh, Going back again, I'm still struck by the difficulty it is for those who are motivated to uh, find ways to join and participate. Um, You know, nothing's sadder to me because you never know where the next great contribution is going to come from if you don't give somebody an opportunity to contribute. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the best thing that you can do for your project is create mechanisms that allow for what, at the end of the day, is the core value of open source, the mass collaboration, the network effect that's enabled through open source. And if you're not fully exploiting that, then you're not using open source to its maximum uh, potential.
0: Wow. That, that was a, a fantastic way to end it, and and thank you so much. I've really really enjoyed this episode, and it's been great hearing all your insights. So thank you very much, Patrick. <laughs> thank well, you, thank Patrick. you
2: so much for the invitation. Um, it's it's always a, a great to talk to uh, folks that are committed. I know Open Teams is committed uh, to uh, increasing the use and contributions of open. So, I mean, these are exactly the type of organizations we want to, to support. We want every of course, we want all software to be open source, but we want all businesses that are that are working around open source to be successful. That is truly our mission. To, to and uh, seeing the work that Open Teams is doing uh, um, is great. And if we can help in any way, uh, let us know because we definitely want you all to be successful.
0: Well thank you very much for that. And it seems like our, our missions are almost directly aligned because our goal really is to help people build their open source business. Um, so. To those of you listening, uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, If you did like what you saw and you're watching this on YouTube, then please give the video a like and subscribe to be able to see some more content like this in the future. And if you're listening to the podcast, uh, then please leave a review. That really, really will help us and and let us know what you think. Uh, So next episode, we'll be talking with Wenjing Chu, the head of open source and research at FutureWay Technologies. So... Until then, stay safe, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.